This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Welcome to Aquarium Mania. I'm your host, Dr. Roy Anong, speaking to you from the University of Florida IFAS Tropical Aquaculture Laboratory. Thanks for joining us. Childhood aquarium keeping has been an introduction and gateway for many professionals working in public aquaria, aquaculture, fisheries, and natural resource conservation. My guest today, Aaron Pilnick, has done all of the above, and today is a doctoral candidate at the University of Florida studying Diadema antillarum, the long-spined sea urchin. Join us as we learn about Aaron's journey from hobbyist to aquarist to scientist and how his diadema can help restore Caribbean coral reefs. We'll be right back after these messages. How many of you have pets? My hand's raised. Now think about how lucky you are to have such a sweet little pet in your life, and that pet is lucky to have you too. But unfortunately, there are countless pets out there that don't have a home to call their own. However, Bob's from Skechers is trying to change that. So we developed Bob's for dogs and cats to help pets in need. With every purchase of adorable Bob's footwear or fun, stylish apparel, or even the cutest Bob's pet accessories, Skechers makes a donation to Petco Love to help save shelter pets. And with your help, we've already saved the lives of over 1 million pets and raised over $7 million. So while you're getting style and comfort with features like Skechers' famous memory foam cushioning, you're also helping to save an adorable pet in need and helping another lucky owner be connected with a future best friend and companion because happiness is having a loving pet by your side. Find Bob's at a Skechers store, Skechers.com, select pet co-locations, or wherever stylish footwear is sold. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Aquarium Mania on Pet Life Radio. My guest today is Aaron Pilnick, longtime hobbyist and now a doctoral candidate studying the long-spined sea urchin, Diadema antillarum. Thanks for your time, Aaron. Thanks, Roy. I'm really glad to be talking to you here today. So as you may know, I I like to get a little personal with these interviews at the start before we kind of talk a little bit more about the sea urchins and coral reefs. I want to talk about your kind of journey through the hobby and uh, what got you interested. So how did you first get interested in marine and aquatic life? What were some of your uh, influences? I would say, you know, like a lot of people... um, I think it was, you know, just growing up, uh, my father, actually, my dad, Michael, uh, grew up uh, as a hobbyist himself. So he'll always tell the story about um, growing up in New Jersey, going down to the Florida Keys back when uh, in like the 1960s, I think, and uh, collecting reef fish down there, bringing them back up to his basement in New Jersey. And uh, he just kind of, you know, always had a love for he was kind of a green thumb, but also kept a lot of aquariums. And then uh, I just grew up with him. I mean, I think there was, we had a cichlid tank when I was a, a toddler. And then I, I think, you know, as my brother and I, Alex, as we grew up in suburban New York, 45 minutes outside the city, we always had fish tanks growing up. We, I think we had a, a cichlid tank. It was the first thing that I, I ever helped my dad set up. It was like a 29 gallon freshwater tank with some angelfish and stuff in there. 
and then my brother and I kind of got interested in in some reef tanks after that. So we we had a basement down there, and uh, and we just started kind of setting up fish tanks. So they kind of blossomed from that. It was kind of just like an interesting thing for us to do and spend time with our father when we were younger. And we liked going around looking at fish stores and we just got really interested in it. Also, you know, growing up in sort of the, you know, the county in New York, we felt like there wasn't, you know, we played baseball and had friends and and all those things, but we were always kind of a little, my brother and I, we were always kind of a little bit outsiders, I guess. We were were pretty much nerds. So we just kind of liked, uh, you spent a lot of time reading forms and setting up fish tanks and we just kind of, you know, kept us really busy. Okay. Well, that explains kind of like the nerdiness that you, um, you displayed today. So th- thanks, for, <laughs> thanks for clearing yeah, that, that up. Yeah, that'll come out a lot probably. Yeah, that, that, no, that, hel- that, helps generally, yeah. that helps a lot actually. <laughs> so um, you mentioned aquarium stores, you know, back then, what was going on in those stores back when you were younger? And, and uh, do you remember anything that might be different from the stores you might visit today? Uh, well, I mean, there a lot of them I feel are very similar. Uh, one, a couple that we really liked to go to were House of Fins in Connecticut. And there were a couple other local stores uh, in like the New York tri-state area. And there were, I guess, maybe fewer like fish stores that were dedicated for coral reefs. We really liked going to the House of Fins because they had, you know, a nice collection of corals. So it was almost like going to a, a public aquarium for us there. Then I moved to Orlando when I was in high school, started going to, and I worked at a fish store. It was actually my first job ever when I was in high school. I worked at a fish store called Sea in the City in Orlando. And at that time, I think it was kind of like the premier reef store in Orlando. And so, I mean, I guess there was probably, you know, a lot, I would say there's a lot of the corals were probably, you know, imported. And I think quite a few are still, but I think there's probably more emphasis on like local aquaculture now and and stores and shops that are kind of, you know, been fragging and selling their own corals. Um, So that's kind of a a shift since I started going to fish stores and working at them when I was younger. So speaking of, yeah, you said you moved to Orlando. Um, Obviously uh, you you learned like that it can get hot probably um, hotter than New York. (laughs) And um, other than that, um, were there any kind of good fish keeping lessons you learned? And I guess you said you worked with a veterinarian as well, right? In Orlando. I did. Yeah. So in high school, I worked two jobs. I, I worked at this uh, fish store, Sea in the City. And then I also worked at a veterinary clinic, which this is a good story. I actually, I worked with a guy named Bob Porter. And really, I've told you this probably a million times, but I love this. So I, I worked as it was like a veter, you know, as a veterinary assistant or intern. I worked there a couple times a week. And, and I just helped to kind of do a lot of the, the back of the house stuff, cleaning, and I helped, um, but I was able to help with some procedures. And I, at the time, I thought that I might want to go into veterinary medicine as a career. And uh, so I was getting really good experience, worked for this guy named Bob Porter. But he knew at the time that I was interested in aquatics as well. And so he uh, went to vet school at UF. And this was back in, uh, when I worked for Bob, it was in 2000 and uh, like six or 2007, I think. And he said to me, oh yeah, you've got to go meet this guy named Roy Yanong. You know, he's like uh, the premier aquatics guy. And then I, I never reached out because I was in high school. I mean, I was so young. I didn't know really what I was even doing, but I knew about the famous Dr. Roy Yanong way, way back when. And then next thing you know, you know, he's on my uh, PhD advisory committee. So also please, <laughs> please don't fail me. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that is, that is pretty cool. And yeah, you know, back then, yeah, I probably, um, yeah, I probably wouldn't have had time for you. So uh, I'm just kidding, man. <laughs> So um, let's fast forward to college. And, and I know you did a lot of kind of aquatics related work too. Can you tell us a little bit 
about uh, the opportunities in Costa Rica and Australia, which, you know, I would have loved to have done something like that in college. Yeah. So this is back at, uh, I did my undergraduate at Tufts University. Uh, so I guess I didn't, I wanted some more uh, of the pain. So I went up back up to the Northeast to be in the cold. So yeah, I took a couple of classes in, uh, in undergrad there. One was the tropical ecology and conservation class that kind of, we spent the whole, I took that in my junior year and we spent the entire semester kind of formulating a, a research project uh, that we would then go to Costa Rica. And we were, we spent a month in the rainforest and we're trying to work on these research projects. That was kind of a really formative experience for me, I think. And it kind of really opened my mind to research and, and, and also conservation. And so, I mean, I worked on a project, it was kind of like Bush League stuff, you know? So it was, as an undergraduate, you, you would come up with a project. We were looking at um, like stream ecology and we we're trying to try to understand how the fish assemblage or diversity uh, correlated to like, you know, water, quality or something like that, I think we were looking at. But, you know, um, the real purpose of the class was to just kind of introduce you to research and experimental methods and, and things like that. It was really interesting. But I think for me, also, one of the really formative things that's influenced where I'm at today from that class was, you know, we spent a lot of time with this guy named Andres Vega, and he was this naturalist, this amazing naturalist in Costa Rica. And he would literally um, take us on these hikes I remember he like whipped out a Ziploc bag and made, started to like blow into it and make a whistle noise. And then all of a sudden this rare species of bird was attracted to it and then just showed up on a branch next to us. And I was like, this guy is really, you know, he knows his stuff, but he kind of instilled in me, he, you know, he would tell these stories about him growing up in the Osa Peninsula and being a naturalist there. And, um, now essentially a lot of Costa Rica has been, been developed and there's been habitat fragmentation. So he would tell the story about the jaguar and how essentially it's functionally extinct in Costa Rica because of habitat fragmentation. And they're just, you know, the, the, the populations, they just can't meet each other or they don't have enough uh, habitat essentially to grow. So his kind of parting wisdom with us was like, find some place that you really love that's really important to you. And then just, you know, work your butt off to try to do what you can for for something that's a, for like one place that's really important to you. And for him, it was the Osa Peninsula uh, in Costa Rica. And for me, I was, you know, I always sort of had that in the back of my mind. And I, it sort of became like, you know, after we moved to Florida, it was, uh, I spent a lot of time fishing and diving in Florida. And I knew that it was, you know, an important place for me. It was an important place for my dad. And that's, so that's kind of influenced some of the kind of conservation work that, that I'm trying to, you know, that we're doing now. That's great. And uh, yeah, maybe uh, just real briefly to Australia, because you spent some time in Australia as well. Yeah. So I was really fortunate. I did a study abroad there. So I spent six months and it's really kind of my first foray into like coral reef ecology, apart from keeping fish tanks, which you learn a surprising amount about reef ecology just from keeping them in, you know, in fish tanks, which I think is really interesting. But it was my first real opportunity to get out on the reef. And so I spent time in Queensland up in a, a town called Townsville, which was really great. And there's James Cook University there. So I took a, a couple of classes in coral reef ecology and statistics and things like that. That was, was another formative experience. I did quite a bit of diving on the Great Barrier Reef, and particularly in some of the northern parts of the reef up around Port Douglas. And that was like, I think in 2012, 2011, going into 2012. And then basically in 2016, there was this huge, huge bleaching event that at the time wiped out about 
30% of some of those northern coral reefs in Queensland off the coast in the Great Barrier Reef. So um, I actually looked it up when it, when it happened. And then I guess there were a couple of reefs like Ruby Reef. Um, I remember diving that were gone, right? So, I mean, there was like, you know, within a period of four years, these, these reefs that I dove were just completely gone. So that was another sort of like uh, really impactful thing for me that, you know, put, again, sort of pushed me into, into trying to get into conservation. So fast forward a little bit more and you end up at the National Aquarium in Baltimore. Maybe uh, if you can briefly just tell us a little bit about how you got there and what you did there. Yeah. So this was kind of, you know, for my foray into professional aquarium husbandry, I would say. When I was an undergraduate, I, I my, my first ever internship was for working for Brian, a guy named Brian Nelson. Um, I think you know him pretty well, and, and his, his wife Pilar. Um, and he became a mentor to, to me at the time. He was he was uh, he was working at the New England Aquarium, and I worked with him in the as an intern in the Tropical Gallery there. And then fast forward a couple of years, you know, I had gone through college, uh, graduated, and then I, I got a job in Alabama working in fishery science for a bit. Then I went and taught some scuba diving in the Florida Keys, um, and then a job. So Brian had moved to at first the aquarium in DC, the National Aquarium in DC, which then became incorporated into the, the National Aquarium in Baltimore. Brian had moved there, and then essentially gave me a call and said, "Hey, there's this aquarist position that ha- had opened up in Baltimore," and so I, I applied to it. And then I, I so I ended up working there for about three years. Uh, working again for Brian, and uh, I was the basically the coral husbandry person there. So I managed the uh, institution's coral reef exhibits, among some other things, and did a bunch of diving there as well. And but it was just a really it's a different, totally different beast, you know, going from being a hobbyist to working as a professional aquarist. But it was just really a great experience, and I really enjoyed uh, my time there, and especially working for Brian again. Probably one of the big differences is that you actually get paid, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, in high school, you like work to buy corals and fish and stuff like that. And then all of a sudden, you're like getting paid to, to take care of these animals. So that was pretty cool for sure. Before we take a break, um, I'm going to kind of ask you the uh, question that will lead us into the next, uh, the next half. So uh, what made you decide to go to grad school and uh, where to go? So it was really, I, I really lucked out, I'll say that, about getting into grad school and, and where I'm at now. But essentially, you know, from my time at Tufts and undergrad, a couple of those classes I had taken really kind of got me interested in research. And I, I also worked in a lab under Dr. Jan Pachenik at Tufts, and, and he ran like a marine ecology lab. So I got some research experience and was able to publish a paper. And then I, 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 after college, I knew I wanted to work. I wanted to get the, the, the um, work experience, start making some money. But I also knew in the back of my mind that, you know, I, I sort of wanted to get back into research at some point. And, and that was why I was really starting to kind of look at a graduate degree or strongly consider going back to school for graduate degree. In terms of getting, you know, that's, that's a whole other story about how I ended up here. But essentially, it was through some connections that I made through the, through the aquarium industry. So I had applied for a job down here with the Florida Aquarium at their conservation facility. I didn't get the job, which was you know, really disappointing at the time. But I was able to network into a professor at the University of Florida, um, and he just happened to have, you know, a, a funding a funded grad assistant position that opened at the time. I was kind of interested in, in moving back down to Florida and trying to get closer to the conservation work and, and, and things like that. So kind of just all it sort of all just came together. And with that, let's take a short break. Uh, we'll continue our discussion of Diadema Aquaculture and Restoration with my guest, Aaron Pilnick from the University of Florida after these messages from our sponsors. 
take a bite out of your competition. Advertise your business with an ad in Pet Life Radio podcasts and radio shows. There is no other pet-related media that is as large and reaches more pet parents and pet lovers than Pet Life Radio. With over 7 million monthly listeners, Pet Life Radio podcasts are available on all major podcast platforms. And our live radio stream goes out to over 250 million subscribers on iHeartRadio, Odyssey, TuneIn, Stitcher, and other streaming apps. For more information on how you can advertise on the number one pet podcast and radio network, visit PetLifeRadio.com slash advertise today. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. We're back and continuing our conversation with my guest, Aaron Pilnick, diadema researcher at the University of Florida. So you had a, a definitely had had a lot of experience, you know, starting as a hobbyist. And, you know, I know, I think you'll probably talk to it at some point, how that really helped with giving you perspective in your research, as well as in, um, you know, what you want to do down the road. So let's start by talking about where you are, where you're based and uh, your mentor and your PhD focus. Tell us about the Center for Conservation and its partners first. Yeah, so there's this really uh, amazing facility. It's located in Apollo Beach, Florida, so a couple minutes south of Tampa. Um, it's called the Center for Conservation. It's just really unique kind of consortium of different institutions that are based in one central location where there's a lot of this conservation work that's happening. So the land that we're actually sitting on right now, I'm there right now, is owned by the Tampa Electric Company. So they have their power plant facility right here. And they own, as far as I understand, 100 acres or more of land that's allocated towards conservation. And essentially, they've leased a portion of that land very inexpensively to the Florida Aquarium. And then the Florida Aquarium has also leased some of that land to the FWC, the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission. And then UF also has a presence here. So the University of Florida, they placed one of their faculty uh, members, Dr. Josh Patterson, who's my uh, advisor here at the facility. So there's, you know, the Florida Aquarium, they, they've established a, a really strong coral conservation program here, as well as a sea turtle rescue and rehabilitation program. So right now I'm staring at a couple greenhouses that the Florida Aquarium is doing some pretty groundbreaking work on keeping some of these really endangered species of corals from the Florida reef track, uh, these systems, and also working really hard at, at reproducing them and then essentially producing, you know, um, a bunch of coral fragments that were then able to go back out to the reef. So then there's that, there's the, the turtle uh, rescue and rehabilitation building here where they, they take a lot of cold stranded uh, turtles and fix them up and then, and then release them. The Florida Fish and Wildlife, they have an education building here where there's some really amazing people who bring in uh, tons of school groups and, and take them fishing uh, at one of the ponds here. Um, as well as educate them on, on marine research uh, and, and uh, marine science and kind of, you know, do a lot of outreach in that regard. And then they're also building a new, uh, FWC is building a new stock enhancement research facility here. So they're moving their, some of their redfish aquaculture, their redfish hatchery up from Port Manatee to the, to the location here. And then we have uh, a little modular office uh, where a bunch of those partners work together. And that's where uh, my advisor, Josh, is, and uh, that's where I work out of as well. So it's kind of a cool, um, just collaborative environment that's really over, even over the past couple of years since I've been here, it's really exploded. And 
got a lot of funding and there's some really cool conservation work that's happening here. So tell us a little bit about Josh and kind of how, you know, a, a lot of folks think of aquaculture as being sort of one thing and you and Josh are working at it from a kind of a different angle. Maybe talk a little bit about that angle. Yeah. So Josh's research focus is really in restoration aquaculture. So he has a strong background in, in fish aquaculture. He's really a fish physiologist. Um, but a lot of the research that he does now is involving, well, the sea urchin stuff, which we'll talk about. Um, he's done some coral reef ecology and conservation work, seagrass restoration. But with the part that I find really interesting is, yeah, it's kind of this uh, mashup between you know, restoration ecology and aquaculture. So, you know, there's there's a huge, the, the field of coral restoration is kind of exploding um, right now. And so essentially we're losing coral reefs at a rate um, that it's incentivizing us to figure out how do we at least, you know, how do we try to grow some of these things in the lab so that we can it's as a stop as a stopgap measure so that we don't actually lose everything and that we can start to t- sort of think about how do we grow these things to to start restocking them and putting them back out onto the reef. So Josh has kind of bridged some of the gap between, you know, really classical like um, finfish aquaculture and restoration ecology. So we're looking at, you know, growing these species that may not necessarily have a real high commercial or food food value. So we're not growing corals and urchins feed people, but we're growing them to actually try to restore some of these ecosystems. And it's challenging because there's, you know, there's, while there's a huge amount of research um, that's gone into how do you grow tilapia and and tons of other species that have a commercial value, like I was saying, you know, we're, we're probably, you know, we're not selling, trying to produce corals to sell them for food market, like I said. So there's, there's just been, you know, a lot less research um, into going on into how do we produce some of these invertebrates, uh, reproduce them in the lab, and, and how do we grow them? And then also not only that, but how do we put them, look at putting them back out into the wild, um, onto these reefs, and we have to look at how the performance of these animals do after growing them in a, in a type of hatchery setting. So let's dive into uh, diadema a bit more now, and uh, maybe start by telling us, you know, what kind of diadema are and, and why they would even be like related to coral reef restoration. Yeah, so diadema are these really, really kind of large, I say large because they're relatively large compared to other species of sea urchin that used to be really prolific uh, sort of everywhere in the Florida Keys and throughout the Caribbean Sea. They were sort of a nuisance. So people would actually, and even in the literature, you can read about people trying to uh, figure out methods of population control because there were so many of them. And they're, they are slightly venomous. So they call them the long spine sea urchin uh, as their colloquial name. And they have a, 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 a small amount of venom in their spines. But basically, if you step on one or you you know get spiked by one in your hand, it, it's pretty painful. So kind of a nuisance on the reef. But ecologically, they're really important. Uh, the best way I can sort of describe them is they're kind of like a lawnmower of the ocean. And so there's, you know, large bodied reef grazing herbivores, and they're constantly grazing down macroalgae and turf algae, and essentially, you know, reducing the amount of algae that's on a reef, which then promotes coral growth or coral recruitment and growth. So you can imagine a coral, if it's trying to either reproduce sexually or asexually, it needs, you know, a nice little bit of habitat and and some clean substrate, essentially, where it it can, you know, attach and start to grow and thrive. But without that, without that clean substrate, they basically the corals will just fail to recruit 
or if they do recruit, they'll sort of get smothered by macroalgae. So that's where sort of the ecological function of diadema come into play. But unfortunately, and this is kind of like a classic, you know, problem that anyone who's studied marine ecology has learned about. But in the early 1980s, there was this undescribed disease that unfortunately um, killed off like 95, 99% or so of diadema populations on these coral reefs. So then there was all of a sudden this huge lack of herbivory on the reef. And then there is um, what we call an ecological phase shift from a hard coral associated community to a macroalgae community. Essentially, fewer herbivores, more macroalgae, less coral. And um, it's one of the major stressors, we think, that's really kind of preventing or that led to some of the uh, coral reef decline, particularly in the Caribbean. And one of the things that's sort of preventing some of the recovery of these coral reef ecosystems. So there's really a lot of interest from, you know, restoration practitioners and and the coral reef uh, community to figure out how do we sort of uh, restore some of these populations. And that's where this this concept of aquaculture restoration comes into play. And we're asking the question, can we actually grow them in the hatchery or laboratory and grow them up to a certain size, put them back out on the reef, and then try to restore some of the ecological function that they provide. Maybe now would be a good time to talk about, um, how, so how did your background kind of really help with sort of your development of the systems and, and you know, kind of getting into the, uh, the nuts and bolts of, of just starting the project and, and uh, start from there? So I think that, you know, I did learn a tremendous amount uh, working as um, a professional aquarist. Uh, that sort of prepared me to for this space. Number one, just be you know, just the the husbandry aspect, right, of maintaining large systems and uh, understanding how to manage water quality. You know, in relatively complex aquarium systems, and we're not talking about 40, 50 gallon home aquariums. You know, these are multi-thousand gallon exhibits essentially that we're trying to you're trying to maintain really pristine water quality to keep corals and other really sensitive invertebrates alive. So it's just kind of, you know, taking uh, husbandry to like a professional level, I think is, was really helpful. The other thing that I found really prepared me was one thing that I was intensely interested in as as an aquarist was sort of the engineering aspects of like life support design and installation. And so I had worked on a couple projects in Baltimore where, you know, we had like high phosphates in one of the reef aquarium, the reef exhibits. And we wanted to know how there were upwards of, I think, 15 to 30, even higher, I think maybe 40, 50 parts per million of, of phosphate, which, you know, would make some home aquarius kind of like cringe a little bit if they think about, you know, trying to keep corals in a, in a tank. But these are, you know, this was at the time a, a, an old exhibit. It had actually like a fake uh, or a plenum underneath it, which was kind of like 19... 80s technology, I guess, for setting up large exhibits and was based off this idea of having kind of an anaerobic dead space under the aquarium, which would promote denitrification and keep nitrates down. But what essentially happened, I think, was it became like a huge phosphate sink. And we're trying to figure out how do we reduce phosphates and, you know, no amount of water changes could really reduce kind of decades of of phosphate accumulation that was in sort of the substrate. So anyways, long story short, I helped to you know, designed and build this like phosphate reduction system using uh, lanthanum chloride on, uh, it was a 6,000 gallon coral reef exhibit. We were able to really, actually, we brought the phosphates down pretty far down to, I think we got it like one or two parts per million um, by the time I was, I had left there. So that was really cool. So I, I had learned how to, you know, operate and design and work on some of the life support 
Uh, one thing that I was kind of proud of was I had to replumb like a 14 foot tall protein skimmer on that system. So really taught me how to <laughs> do the installation of uh, design and installation of these sort of really serious, like, you know, larger exhibits. And it's not like, you know, this is just next level kind of life support. We don't even call it filtration. It's called life support in the public aquarium industry. So those, those things really helped me to kind of, um, so when I first started here, the project was essentially how do we try to not only figure out how to grow diadema in the lab, but can we, can we try to build a system that would both allow for sort of a scaling up of a production as well as allow for experimental research. And so I was really able to um, help to kind of design and install this novel recirculating aquaculture system to try to rear these hyper, hypersensitive diadema larvae over like a, you know, 40, 50 day, sometimes longer period. And so that, that part, I kind of came in with some background experience and that was, that was super helpful. So let's go back a little bit, backtrack, and why don't you start from the beginning and explain um, when you're looking at breeding diadema and then kind of raising the larvae, et cetera, kind of like maybe give us the steps. Um, and, and, you know, I know that personally, I think kind of the larval sort of development is pretty fascinating, but, but why don't you start by telling everybody kind of how you breed diadema, you know, and what that means and then what, you know, what you have to do with the larvae. Yeah. So I, I talk a little bit about the life history and a lot of this, the methods um, that we're, we're using, I just want to make a quick note. You know, we learned a lot from Martin Moe, Skip Moe. So he was kind of like the sensei or mentor for this project. So, and people know that and people know a lot of his work with Diadema. So he was, he's been a, a partner and mentor for us within, with, for this project all along. But yeah, so Diadema urchins, there are, there are male and female sea urchins, right? So then they produce gametes just like we do. So we'll have to essentially get them to spawn and then we'll take the gametes and fertilize them, bring them up to a lab. And then we're trying to rear them. So the, the embryos end up turning into this, what we call an echinopluteus larvae. It's kind of jargony, but essentially, and you're right, I think the biology is really fascinating. So these larvae, I, I like to think of them like almost alien spaceships, where they're kind of these, these vessels that you know float around. They're part of the plankton. So they're essentially zooplankton that are existing in the water column. They're floating around over, you know, we, I don't think we really understand how long the larval duration is in the wild, but it could be a period of months. And then they have, you know, an esophagus, a gut, and then they're ingesting phytoplankton. So a lot of single-celled microalgae, and then they're developing over time and growing. And they have these really interesting long arm structures. Um, they're made of calcite. But the most fascinating thing to me about the development, and I could talk like for days about this stuff. So I could probably this again, showing my nerd side a little bit here. <laughs> but they're bilaterally symmetrical. So if you could cut them straight down the middle, and then at some point, they turn into a radially symmetrical urchin. So they, you know, they totally the, you know, the cellular organization of the animal completely changes almost and so it undergoes its metamorphosis and so there's essentially a grouping of cells that grows off the larval gut which grows into the juvenile sea urchin and then that thing the tube feet that grow off of that will attach to a reef and then it'll undergo the, this process of metamorphosis and we call it settlement and then it'll essentially transition from that bilaterally symmetrical larvae to a radially symmetrical juvenile sea urchin. And so a lot of the process, and it's very difficult because these things are hypersensitive to things like dissolved metals, 
you know, high nutrients, bacterial infection, and all these number of things, it, getting them to that point where they can actually turn into, um, they can develop that grouping of cells and then become a juvenile search. And it turns out to be very, very difficult uh, in the lab. So a lot of the research, we're trying to figure out how do we, you know, what do we feed these things? How many do we put in a tank? Um, we have to figure out, you know, some of the larval um, disease issues, which is a big part of aquaculture research. And then we have to, you know, think about some of these um, settlement cues. Um, so it's really the whole process from A to Z, starting with the adults, getting the gametes from them, and then growing these larvae and developing them into the lab until they settle onto a reef or substrate or something like that and turn into a juvenile urchin. So maybe just touch, touch on, so how do you actually get the adults to spawn? Yeah, so that's a good question. So we will actually put, you know, between 15 to 20 broodstock, we'll call them. So these are the adult reproductive sea urchins. We move them to a spawning bin, which is basically a blue tub that holds about, I don't know, 40, 50 gallons of seawater. And then we'll raise the temperature in there. And then just the act of moving them from their holding tank into slightly, you know, warmer water will essentially call it, will stress them out to the point where they can just start stress spawning. And then that'll kind of cause this, you know, spontaneous release of gametes into the water column. But it's a good way for us to sort of do it. It's, and it's non-lethal. So we can, you know, get gametes and get uh, embryos from these sea urchins without having to go through a more invasive process of giving them some type of uh, chemical injection and inducing a spawn by those means. Okay, so there is no romantic music or like um, wine or anything at all involved with this. Just well, just there, there might be, but I think that's more for us, you know. Ah, uh, okay. Urchins, that, you know, that makes, that makes sense. It, it could, it could help. I mean, there's no way to know. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I guess you mentioned kind of some of the challenges. Um, what, what are, uh, where are you like to date? And you know, maybe talk a little bit. I mean, you've had success with them settling, and you know, I know you uh, got some great press for that. Even we're getting some. Uh, invitations by by women etc because of that so uh, uh but, but maybe uh, yeah maybe tell us where you are with the project and uh, how things are going yeah so we've i mean we've really proud to say i, I think we're pretty much you know we've, we've produced around 800 juvenile diadema to date which i um you know is kind of i think it's the most successful effort of any lab that's tried this so we're really proud so we've, you know, through some of the research, we've identified certain microalgae diets that the larvae grow better on, um, or there's a higher survival. So we're, we're really good at, at growing these larvae to late stage larval development at scale. So we can produce at this point, like, you know, tens of thousands of larvae up to the point where they're uh, 30 or 35 days into their development, which is really exciting. And then if all goes right, you know, every all the can, you know, we get everything sort of, we nail all parts of the larval culture aspect, you know, a, a good proportion of those will become competent, we'll, we'll say to settle and then they'll become juvenile surgeons. So, but that part's still very difficult for us. So it's kind of, you know, I would say that we're achieving fairly consistent success with getting them to the point of larval competency, but we're still kind of struggling with a little bit of this issue with like late stage larval disease. And we're just trying to really understand wh where that's coming from right now. And this is something that's kind of eluded uh, many people who tried larval culture of diadema in the past. So for a while, it was thought by the community that it was maybe these heavy metals that was kind of causing developmental failure. And we've kind of tracked that down and, and sort of eliminated that possibility. 
we kind of think that it's like um, has something to do with a bacterial infection and maybe they have some type of compromised immunity, which might partially explain why, you know, they succumb to a disease in the wild also. And so there might be something there. So we're, we're really, we're getting there. I'd say we're, it's a very difficult problem because there's the hardest part is, you know, when there are sort of, it feels like a million things that could be causing developmental failures of the larvae. We have to kind of pick a couple of those potential problems to try to investigate. And so that's really the, the most challenging part of the project, I think, is to try to identify, you know, what's the most important thing to look at. And so we're pretty sure that, you know, they have a, a fairly positive response to antibiotics in the larval culture. So we think it has something to do with a bacterial infection. And so we're just going through all of the like avenues for how infection might occur and trying to eliminate all of those ways that that could happen. And so that's kind of where we're, where we're at right now. I think we're you know, it's taken us a couple of years, but we've learned a tremendous amount and we're, we're, we're pretty close now to, I hate to say this term, but you know, it's used fairly frequently of like cracking the code. Unfortunately, I don't know the code's very complicated and you know, I don't know if we'll ever perfect it, but we're getting closer to the point where we can pretty reliably get these things grown and settled so that we can start to put them back out onto the reef and, and really help out some of the restoration uh, objectives here in the, in, in Florida. And so maybe uh, as we start to close up with uh, when, when you do get them out there, you you, uh, you mentioned it a little bit. What would be kind of the some of the big things you would be looking at as you start seeing what their effect could or could not be? Yeah. So that's sort of the next big problem that might be even more difficult uh, than actually figuring out how to grow them. So, I mean, we can, you know, in theory, produce um you know, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands in a hatchery setting. But then once you move them out into the wild, that's a whole nother question, right? So we want to know what are some factors that could lead to a successful restocking or an unsuccessful restocking. One of the big issues, so they haven't really recovered that well naturally in the wild, which is kind of why we're looking at restoration aquaculture as a potential solution. But, you know, the question exists, why have they not really recovered naturally in the wild? One of the potential reasons is because of they don't have the habitat anymore. So even though they have these really big, long spines and it provides a, a good amount of uh, natural defense, they still have a ton of predators out there. So if they don't have the habitat, these really complex, structurally complex coral reefs to hide from predators, then they'll just get picked off. So we could, you know, the, the possibility exists that we could grow them by the tens of thousands put them back out onto the reef and then they just get picked off. And then they're not really providing that herbivorous function that we really wanted to have. So, you know, then this is kind of transitions into like an ecological question. So how do, you know, what are some biotic and abiotic factors of like a, a coral reef that would, you know, help with restocking success, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, maybe a more structurally complex reef would be able to house more sea urchins or something like that. So we're looking into some of the, some of those questions like what size do we put them out at, you know, because then they have different predators at different size classes. So there's a lot of, you know, a huge amount of questions that need to be addressed. Um, and that's kind of the nature of research. So that's part of the interesting part of that problem as well. Thanks for that. Unfortunately, we're out of time. I want to thank our guest, Aaron Pilnick, and our producer, Mark Winter, for making this show possible. Aaron, uh, kind of maybe it's in closing, I know you have strong feelings about aquarists and hobbyists and from your perspective, how they can be more involved or how they can actually contribute. You want to close us with that? Yeah. I mean, I think essentially, you know, like I mentioned earlier about Andres Vega, he kind of instilled in me this strong desire to do something, you know, find something that I really like, uh, wanted to conserve. That was a, a place that was really important to me. And I think that essentially 
when I was working as a public aquarist, I felt, you know, it was intimidating to kind of reach out into and to venture into kind of an academic space or research space. And I guess I felt, you know, I think that there's a tremendous amount of opportunity for aquarists and people who are intimately, you know, do husbandry every single day, whether that's professionally or in the hobby, where they can add value to some of these research and conservation efforts. And for me, I kind of just had to get to a point where I, I realized my own value and that this is a huge skill set that aquarists, the hobbyists have. And we sort of, it's hard for us to, I think, I think to enjoy taking care of these animals and being in the hobby or as a profession without thinking about these animals as a natural resource and these ecosystems as a natural resource. So I feel that we have somewhat of a responsibility to engage in conservation a little bit. And I would encourage people to do that. And especially young people who are getting into this, this field because of a passion, you know, I would say, don't be intimidated by the research and know that you'll have a huge skill set that's really important that could really be helpful for, for conservation research. No, I definitely appreciate that. I mean, I know, um, you know, there's a lot of great research out there, but oftentimes the researchers don't know how to keep the animals alive, you know, when we're talking about aquatics. And I, I do agree. I mean, aquarium hobbyists and, you know, professional aquarists really have as you mentioned, that really great skill set, which is pretty critical. So yeah, thanks for that. And uh, and thanks again for joining us, Aaron. Yeah, thanks, Roy. Uh, it was a huge pleasure. It's really glad to talk with you. And uh, please don't fail me also, I know, because uh, you're on my committee. <laughs> well, you know, we'll, that'll be a discussion for another time. Uh, so, another time. Another time. So uh, <laughs> please be sure to check out Aaron's Aquarium a guest page for more information. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for a show, email me at drroy at petliferadio.com. That's D-R-R-O-Y at petliferadio.com. Until next time, please be sure to visit your local cram stores, keep your tanks clean and your fish and invertebrates healthy, and definitely keep an eye out for updates on diadema and coral reef conservation efforts by Aaron Pilnick and his colleagues. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.